Hey, welcome everybody. I'm a few minutes early. I hope that's not a bother. There's another live stream that's scheduled and I can't get on it again. I, I goofed it up again. <laughs> that's the way I do it here. So hopefully people will find this one. We shall see. Okay, someone showed up. Uh, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to start here in just a few minutes. I've got some good details that I've discovered worth talking about. Again, because there is some confusion on the contemporary eyewitnesses of the book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith papyri. I'll get started here in just a couple of minutes. I look like heck warmed over. Woohoo! That's typical. Oh, my hair is lovely tonight. Who cares? Ooh, I'm starting to thin out. I've got a red nose because I took my puppy for a walk and I got a sunburn. Ay, ay, ay. So, you know, I look funnier than I normally do. <laughs> and I'm going to act funnier than I normally act. Yeah, baby. Anyway, welcome all you guys. Looks like there's a few of us coming in. I'm going to start here in about one minute. Uh, I've got some good materials. Now, you're going to have to let me know if you want another subject. Let me know in the comments or if you uh, if you like this subject. I love doing this subject. There's a lot more here to share. I've got my Jackson Hole t-shirt on. It's a gorgeous moose. Woohoo! I don't know who the moose is, the shirt or the guy in the shirt. Hey, Tim Rathbone, how you doing? Why what? Why am I asking you about the subject? Is that what you're wondering? Um, I'm going to truly, I've got, uh, there's just loads of information. I just rewatched. RFM's interview on uh, with Brian Hauglid. And uh, Brian Hauglid is really, really convinced that the push into apologetics on this Book of Abraham subject by both John Gee and, unfortunately, John Twetness, who's passed away now, the, uh, the push for the apologetics just doesn't work. Uh, and Brian Hauglid knew that, and he knew when the evidence was too weak to support the apologetic, and yet they made him, because he was a member of farms at the time, they made him go the apologetic route. And that's one of the reasons why Hauglid has backed out and said, uh, no, let's, let's go with the evidence. Let's quit worrying about the silly apologetic. Hey, Lamb Chop, good morning to you too. So looks like we've got a couple of people here. Oh, I hope everyone's week has gone good. Mine has gone real good. I am uh, producing more music out of GarageBand, and I'm absolutely having a ball with it. Uh, I just, I cannot stop doing music. It's it's a joy because it's something I've always wanted to do, and GarageBand gives me a chance to really jump on it and enjoy it. So, hey, Donna Snyder, nice shirt. Thank you. Uh, Jackson Hole, boy. Oh, there we go. You don't want to see my ugly face. You want to see the shirt. Yeah. Massive chest here. Arnold Schwarzenegger chest. 
not really, but good try, dude. Mark Crespin, hey, Paul Osborne, you're here. Good to see you. El Sonnabend, hey, how you doing? Welcome, everybody. Okay, I'm going to get started. I don't want to dawdle. I have a lot of information to share with you. I'm trying to keep my drink away from me so that I don't drink too much. Get too much of this Irish whiskey in me and I'll, I'll slurp to stir <laughs> or start to slur or something. Nah, it's Diet Coke. Calm down. I wouldn't drink on online anyway. Zanny Banani, hey, how you doing? Okay, you guys, let's do this. Let's get started. Oh, Donna Schneider. You can be what you want in your world. Thank you. I will. I'm going to be the backyard professor tonight. Woohoo. Okay. Looks like we've got enough people here to get started. Let's get motivating. Hey, Dan Bogle. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad you showed up. I might need your expertise tonight. Uh, I always enjoy uh, Dan Bogle's materials, and we're really looking forward to April 6th. Definitely April 6th with RFM and Bill Real on Mormonism Live. Shut up and sit down. <laughs> I love that part of their opening. <laughs> oh, crap. Too much. Too much. All right, Doug Vincent. You got two sessions. I know, Doug. Yeah. Go tell those other ones, go tell those guys in the other one to come to this one. I'm sorry about that. I goofed up my schedule again. I do that every stinking time. It's just dumber than dumb. Anyway, woohoo. I guess the one session will die out and this one will work real good. Okay, fun time for, oh, well, thank you. Okay, let's, uh, let's get started. Carrie Mulstein, one of our very favorite Mormon apologists to discuss. Uh, actually, more or less, be oh, hold on. I've got to turn down the heat real quick. I've got my note here reminding me. Hang on, this will interrupt me. I'll be right back. I'm not, I'm out of the picture, but I'm not out of the place yet. Okay, turn the heat down, you clown. Okay, here I am. Here I am. Stay calm, everybody. I did a disappearing act, and now I'm back. Carrie Moolstein, our favorite apologist to... Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, let the disemboweling begin. Well, we are going to disembowel Carrie Moolstein tonight. Uh, if you don't like blood and guts, I'll try to keep it to a minimum. I will do that off of screen, Yes. I have my butcher pen right here, and I'm going to circle everything that he said wrong, which is going to be circling every word. <laughs> Not really. Actually, tonight, tonight, he's on our side, but he doesn't know it. Molstein wrote an article. Let me jump on this. Molstein wrote an article. It was... I mean, it was a decent stab at it, right? He's written a lot of articles. Assessing the Joseph Smith papyri, an introduction to the historiography of their acquisitions, translations, and interpretations. And he published this in The Interpreter, a journal of Mormon thought, online by the great Daniel C. Peterson, 
Mormon apologist extraordinaire who has retired out of teaching now. Bless his heart. He can now get on with enjoying his life. So I envy him in so many respects for that reason. Molstein, and this was in a, uh, this was 2016, pages 17 through 46. Essentially, I, I'm going to summarize. I'm not going to bother reading it because I, I want to read something else of Molstein, but I do want to use the, hey, Splunky Doink, welcome. I do want to use this as a basic introduction to get to uh, understand how most, hey, Radio Free Mormon. Okay, yes, we will see it. You will see the disemboweling, absolutely. The Wonderful Wizard of Farms. Hey, I love that, Daniel Peterson. The Wonderful Wizard of Farms. Because, 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 because. The Wonderful Wizard of Farms. <clears throat> Sorry, I don't sing well, but man, I make dang good music in Garage Band. Molstein, more or less, has acquired a bad habit. And it's a habit that I want to share with you because I find it not uh, disconcerting, more amusing from my point of view. However, his viewers are going to begin to take him seriously, and he really shouldn't be taken all that seriously. Anyone who presents, say, uh, evidence or who has an assessment of evidence, like, say, Dan Vogel or Radio Free Mormon or Paul Osborne or Brent Metcalf or Bill Reel or Brian Hogwood or the Backyard Professor. We have just assumptions. Kerry Mulsine, he has the better argument. Molstein has gone to calling pretty much anything that he doesn't believe or that he doesn't like simply an assumption. And because we're using the evidence, he claims we're saying that we are more objective. We are objective and no one else is. So in a way, he's misstating the whole premise of what it is the living heck we're doing here, right? And it's the way he goes about it. Now, I'm going to summarize. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to summarize it. You, interpreters online, you can find it real easy. Uh, I gave you the reference already. Uh, look at the beginning of this video, and I gave you the reference. Here's my idea of how I, and I'm just going to use the first two pages of Molstein as he sets up his argument to show how the Egyptological objectivity is falsely being touted. And so, because of our lousy assumptions, Kerry Molstein gets to elevate his own assumptions into the realm of categorical reality. Now, I'm probably exaggerating, but not by much, man. Yeah. Mormon and non-Mormons translate the papyri that Joseph Smith had. We have Robert Rittner, Hugh Nibley, Michael Dennis Rhodes, Klaus Baer, etc. 
Kerry Molstein recognizes this. There's been a lot of translations of the Joseph Smith papyri. So we want to know if Joseph Smith can translate Egyptian, and every single apologist wants to distract us onto the book of Abraham. Because they know deep down that Joseph Smith didn't translate the papyri correctly, and they don't want to admit this. Because Revelation did not help Joseph Smith. But his translation to translate the papyri correctly was not helped by God either. And this implication is too thorny for Mormon apologists to handle, right? Since as an apologist, it would have horrified me, it would have terrified me. If, if I would have thought through this implication way back then, I would have, ooh, steer clear from that. So it's not just Joseph Smith on the line anymore, but God as well. That's just the fact that we have to establish here. So how do we know that Joseph Smith didn't translate the papyri correctly? How do we know this? Let's ignore the non-Mormon Egyptologists for just a moment. Relax, I'll get back to them, but let's put them to the side, okay? And look at the Mormon scholars. I'm going to say Egyptologists, but I'll call them scholars. Yeah, they've studied Egyptian, but, you know. We have <clears throat> Hugh Nibley. Now, I've got his first edition. This is his second new revised, enlarged, standardized, and excelled edition by Carrie Moulst, or I mean, Carrie Moulstein, by John Gee and... Uh, and uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes, and it's a sensational book. It's great. It's fabulous. They added a whole bunch more crap in it, right? The Joseph, well, Hugh Nibley translated the Joseph Smith papyri himself, and we have Michael Dennis Rhodes, the horror book of breathings, wherein he also translated the Joseph Smith papyri himself. And yet when we read their translations, we don't find the book of Abraham. <laughs> and what's more is, neither did they. Hugh Nibley did not get the book of Abraham from the papyri when he translated it. You can read his book if you think I'm joking. Michael Dennis Rhodes did not get the book of Abraham when he translated the papyri 25 years later as sort of an updating of Nibley. And even in the new edition of Nibley, in reworking Nibley's translation, no one found the book of Abraham in any of the papyri. So what gives? That's the question we want to know. What does give? 
This is proof positive that even Mormon scholars show that Joseph Smith did not translate the papyri correctly. We don't have to use the biased, objective-claiming Egyptologists that Kerry Molstein is so terrified about, and he tries to warn us away from them so that he can stick his own subjectivity into this uh, issue and imagine that that's even stronger than the subjectivity of the Egyptologist. So I, I, you know, that's his thinking and I, I don't get it, but you know, whatever. Even the Mormons agree that Joseph Smith did not translate the papyri correctly. Now, this is astonishing. This is really quite amazing. We don't need the bias non-Mormons at all. The Mormons have shown us that. Joseph Smith blew it. The case is closed. <laughs> Sincerely, it is really that easy. And, oh, Ruth Smart, good to see you. Goatly McGoatface, glad you're here bleeding along. Ruth Smart, good to see you. Elizabeth Russell, thank you. Uh Joseph Smith did not translate the papyri because the Mormon translations of the papyri do not agree with Joseph Smith's translation. It's that simple. It's kind of shocking when you really look at it that way. There is no other way to look at it. So that's the answer do the only question that matters, right? What's the one question we want to know? Well, did Joseph Smith translate the papyri correctly? No, they didn't. No, he didn't, according to his own scholars, the Mormon ones. All else besides this is what I would say is apologetics, not scholarship. There's nothing of Abraham or Joseph or Jacob, or of Jacob's ladder in any of the papyri that Hugh Nibley translated or that Michael Dennis Rhodes translated. There is no ten tribes. There is no Adam, Eve, and the serpent tempting Eve in the papyri that the Mormon scholars translate which papyri we know Joseph Smith had and the church has today, right? There's no fall of man here. There is nothing biblical here anywhere in any of the papyri at all as Joseph Smith and all of the early Mormons were claiming. Now that's key, right? I didn't make this up. I'm just simply showing you the history. This isn't me with a, a biased slant. I'm going to show you the evidence tonight, and I'm going to show it in real nice detail tonight. I've skimmed over it in previous episodes. Tonight, we eat the steak and lobster. We're not going to do the Mormon Sunday school milk. No, I'm going to give you the seven-course banquet tonight. Yeah, tonight we feast. There's no Moses. There is no Pharaoh Necho. There is no Jacob with his two wives. None of this is on the papyri. None of it. And yet it was all claimed to be there. 
So did Joseph Smith translate by the gift of God or not? And you see, here's how Molstein sets it up. There is no middle ground. No fence sitters are allowed. You either say Joseph Smith translated by God or he didn't. Simple. Okay, good. We love simple. Let's keep it simple. Good. He says, most ignore this fact. No, most do not ignore that fact, Kerry Molstein. See, he's just, he's he's trying to be an apology. He's trying to be a good guy for his Mormon audience. You know, we can bear with the silliness a little bit. He's just wrong here. Absolutely everyone who has dealt with this have tested Joseph Smith's translation abilities. Of that, we have ample evidence on all sides and from all quarters. There is no question about that. Finding he didn't translate correctly is not ignoring the issue, Mr. Molstein. Yeah. But see, he sets it up that way. Nope. Don't follow you. Ain't gonna, can't make me. No way, baby. No one is pulling an intellectually false sense of objectivity on Joseph Smith's ability to translate. We are being as objectively probable as the evidence leads us to our conclusions. That is what we're doing. Let's keep that crystal clear. Believing God helped Joseph Smith translate is faith-based, Molstein says, and cannot be proven. Now here, that statement is true. Right. Molstein also says, believing it's impossible to translate with God's help is also faith-based, which also cannot be disproven or, or cannot be proven. Now, here, I think his statement is misleading. And he's saying that in his interpreter article, assessing the Joseph Smith papyri. This is, I'm just summarizing the opening two pages, right? Here, I think he's being misleading, and here's why. No one is saying it's impossible. So as Dan Vogel found in his Excellent response to Kerry Mulstein video. He said, Mulstein is just setting up a straw man. I also find yet again another straw man because there's no one out there saying it's impossible. That's Kerry Mulstein saying that. None of us have. We don't say it's impossible. We are saying, let's see what the evidence shows us. That's what we're saying. Now, see, Molstein wants to say, well, that's just an assumption, and it's based on objectivity, and therefore you're not going to come to the right answer. Who gets to determine what the right answer is? <laughs> right? Yeah. See how they set it up so that no matter what, they do not have to account for the actual evidence. Isn't that interesting how they do this? <laughs> it's almost cute. <laughs> so, he says this choice of ours, whether Joseph Smith translated by the gift of power of God or not, he says this choice colors our way of seeing things. 
Actually, it's the evidence which influences us, Mr. Molstein, not our preordained subjectivity or objectivity. The evidence will help us determine whether it is valid to disbelieve or to believe something. We base it on evidence, not on faith, right? Faith is irrelevant. So believers and non-believers do come to different conclusions, to be sure. So the real issue here is not objectivity versus subjectivity. That's irrelevant. The real issue is what does the evidence warrant for our conclusions? Ah, now that's the issue. Yeah, that's that's where we're going. Forget previous belief or previous disbelief. None of that has any bearing on anything. Only the evidence is what we want to see. Right. Where does the evidence lead is what is most important. And I'm making a big deal about this because Molstein tries to show how anyone who uses the evidence who doesn't get the answer that is faithful to supporting Joseph Smith is a biased scholar. And so we can ignore their claim, which I say, wrong answer, bucko. I'm not buying your silly straw man setup at all, Mr. Molstein. Nope. He sidesteps. I love this. I, I, come on. It's, it's cute. It's fun. It's cute. Come on. All the Mormon apologists are doing this, you guys. We all know this now, but it's fun to point out because every one of them do it without even thinking. They don't even bat an eye. They don't even realize what they're doing here. After he sets this issue up, then he sidestep and he goes to, guess where? The book of Abraham. <laughs> It's so cute how they do this. I love how they deflect away from the main issue, right? He says, here is some of the papyrus that Joseph Smith translated into the book of Abraham. Now, here's all the material that you have to know and master and study in order to assess the book of Abraham properly. And none of that means a hill of beans to us. We don't give a flip about the book of Abraham. We've already determined the issue. Thank you, Mormons. Hey, if you want, we can say we have a bonus with, uh, say, Bear and Parker and Wilson, as well as Ashment and Rittner with the non-Mormons who have also translated the papyri, and they can't find anything Joseph Smith and the early Mormons found in the papyri either, let alone the Mormons who also can't do it. Why do we give a flying flip about the book of Abraham then? That is irrelevant. We've got our answer. It is that simple. Isn't that astonishing? And yet we get all of 
this magnificent Mormon apologetic convoluted, oh, we've got to learn the ancient Hebrew and oh, we've got to get into the traditions of the ancient Abraham and oh, we've got to study Mesopotamia and oh, we've got to travel to Egypt and climb the Great Pyramid and oh my gosh, we've got to play the Egyptian music to get in tune with the spirit so that we can get our testimony of how true the book of Abraham is, etc. And none of that is worth spit. <laughs> it's that simple. That's glorious, isn't it? I'm, I'm serious. So, the amazing thing is, the amazing, beautiful thing is, when we read Hugh Nibley's translation of the papyri, he agrees pretty much with his own professor, Klaus Baer, in his translation that he did in Dialogue 1968. Update at 25 years, when we read Michael Dennis Rhodes' translation of the Book of Abraham Papyri, we get the same translation that Robert Rittner got in his translation, and he taught John Gee. So in the 25 to 30 years, when everybody's been translating out this papyri, nobody has disagreed with anybody about what it translates into, ever, anywhere, in print. <laughs> hey, that's worth noticing. Yeah. So we don't even have to worry about our biases. We don't have to go to the non-Mormon Egyptologists. Crime and use the Mormons themselves, right? Why not? Shoot, they can't reject it. Yeah, this is amazing. So we are not using a false sense of objectivity here either, as Kerry Mulstein wants to poison the well and try to get his LDS audience into thinking any time we ever talk about this subject with critics, they are always using a false sense of objectivity. Well, that's not true at all. That's just silly. That's a straw man. That doesn't work. We're not doing that. We are firmly planted in the evidence itself. The evidence leads to the objective, probable truth that there is literally in every sense we can test and see for ourselves from all parties that there is nothing biblical to the papyri that Joseph Smith translated. There is no connection whatsoever that Joseph Smith and the early Mormon witnesses made between the Bible and the Egyptian antiquities. There are no foundational biblical characters anywhere in any of the papyri we have today, and we have Carrie Mulstein to show us the way. Amazingly enough, this is what I wanted to get to tonight. This is, again, th this is really a good book. Yeah, it's pro-Mormon. It doesn't matter. It's a fantastic book, man. You have to get it. You do. I'm, I'm telling you. Uh, Joseph Smith's Biblical View of Egypt. Now, I've, I've touched on a couple of items of Kerry Mulstein. And, hey, Mo, 
Doug Lyman, good to see you again. Doug Vincent still here. Hey, Mike Weist, how you doing? Good to see you. Paul Osborne, Doug Lyman. Okay, you guys are all here. Kerry Molstein. Now, I've touched on this a little bit. I want to get into more detail because this is fatal to Joseph Smith. And he thinks he is building Joseph Smith's prophetic power. That is so ironic. Again, that word I'm beginning to love to use, man. They don't get it. Page 450. Let's get on to this. Because we have no writings, and this is Molstein, from Joseph Smith himself making connections of the Joseph in Egypt and uh, Abraham and all that uh, with different biblical aspects of Moses and Aaron and Adam and Eve and the serpent and all that. Notice how he's playing fast and loose with the evidence, and yet he does something remarkable here. Let's just keep reading. Let's be let's be patient with Brother Moolstein. We must rely on hearsay sources to learn of purported biblical connections the Mormon prophet may have made between the Bible and the papyri. So he's being cautious. Now, Okay, yeah, I can grant that to him, yes. It's all good, because the connections he makes are spectacular, really, using the witnesses. Better than I did, and I honestly thought I did a real good job in my huge paper, and he outdid me. That dirty rat, that dirty rat! <laughs> this creates a difficulty in drawing conclusions from the evidence we will examine. Some would argue that we should not give credence to anything not written by Joseph Smith himself. However, if such a standard were applied to history in general, we would find much of what we know about history forcibly ripped from us. Very powerful point. Yes. It would certainly strip us of most of the things we know about Joseph Smith. It would. We have nearly 100 accounts of people speaking with Joseph Smith about the papyri or the mummies and dozens of the prophet's own journal entries that describe him teaching others about the same objects and subjects. To suppose that in his few written accounts about the antiquities, he said everything he had ever conveyed in these many oral communications with friends and visitors is naive at best. Turning a blind eye to these sources because of the difficulty of dealing with them would represent lazy scholarship that is unwilling to engage with issues. I mean, he said it better there than I could have. Yeah. Dan Vogel, face it, he said it better than you could have too, didn't he? Isn't it glorious? He, think, he thinks he's being objective? Okay, well, let's keep going. Yeah. Clearly, there is something of significance to be gained from those who spoke with the prophet 
or heard him teach, we would be foolish to ignore such valuable sources. Did you hear that, my good brother, Paul Osborne? Yeah, Paul Osborne's here. One of the great online Book of Abraham scholars. Carrie Molstein is agreeing with you, my friend, and me. Yeah, these sources are very important, even if they're second and third and fourth hand sources. That is not the issue. The issue is Joseph Smith is involved with them. Gary Molstein recognizes this. Now, that's very important. There are some hyper-literal, uh, hyper-true-believing Mormons who want nothing to do with anything anyone said unless it was written only by Joseph Smith himself. And Gary Molstein, a, a faithful LDS scholar, completely disagrees with that. He calls that lazy scholarship. That's that's really cool. I can see I'm going to end up quoting that to a lot of Mormons that I have run-ins with, right? Let's jump to page 452, the Brown account. Now, let me give you the detail. Albert Brown, he visited Kirtland in October of 1835, just months after the acquisition of the papyrium mummies. In a letter to his parents, he recounts the purchase and states that the records contain some of the history of Joseph while in Egypt and also of Jacob and many prophecies delivered by them. We know of times when visitors were told the writings were of Abraham and Joseph, Jacob's sons. We know that was being said. That's how Mulstein puts it. Jumping to 453. It is clear that there was a general feeling that the biblical records were being added to because of these papyri. Interesting. Now he goes to the Cowdery and I and I'm skipping and jumping. I've I've marked it in pink what I'm going to read tonight. Uh, if you if you're afraid I'm taking things out of context, get the book and read the article. I'm not taking anything out of context. I'm skipping irrelevancies and getting to the core of what Molstein does to show the fatal blow against the prophet himself. And Molstein is never going to be able to undo it. He gave us the key to showing that Joseph Smith is a fraud with the papyri. That's astonishing. And he doesn't even know it. Oliver Cowdery account. This is an important one. He worked for a few months on the papyri in conjunction with Joseph Smith. Of course, we all know that. Oliver Cowdery did not claim he was sharing Joseph Smith's interpretation and in fact may have been the originator of the views he expressed. However, it is clear that Joseph Smith was at least nominally involved in the history Cowdery was trying to create because Joseph Smith at least somewhat oversaw the historical efforts Cowdery was asked to undertake. In other words, he's, <laughs> he's trying to keep it at an absolute bare minimum, but there's no question Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery saw eye to eye. I'll just summarize it that way. Molstein's going to accuse me of taking his words out of context. Bunk. Joseph Smith never went out of his way to correct anything Cowdery said about the papyri or the biblical connections ever. 
and he had many opportunities to. So he supported it. And because historical efforts, Cowdery was asked, uh, Cowdery wrote that Joseph Smith was assisting him with those writings. All right, there you go. Joseph Smith was clearly involved with and knew what Cowdery was saying about the papyri, fundamentally so, even with his own history the hist and the official history of the church, sure. Ah, uh, let's see. While it is likely that at this time Cowdery did not hold to interpretations he had not shared with the prophet or that the prophet disagreed with, the most we can say is that these were Cowdery's views held after having conferred closely with Joseph as they examined the papyri together. That's all we need to know. That's perfect. Because every interpretation Cowdery gave the papyri was biblical. Cowdery provided an extensive description of the papyri in the LDS newspaper, The Messenger and Advocate, some of which concerned seeing biblical connections in the vignettes on the papyri. The evidence is apparent upon the face. They were written by persons acquainted with the history of the creation. Now, this is Calvary's description of the papyri. They were acquainted with the history of creation, the fall of man, and more or less the correct ideas and notions of deity. The representation of the Godhead, three yet in one, is correctly drawn to give simply though impressively the writer's views of that exalted personage. The serpent represented as walking or formed in a manner to be able to walk, standing in front of and near a female figure, is to me one of the greatest representations I have ever seen upon paper or a writing substance and must go so far forward convincing the rational mind of the correctness and the divine authority of the Holy Scriptures, and especially that part which has ever been assailed by the infidel community as being a fiction as to carry away with one mighty sweep the whole atheistic fabric. So the snake walking on legs talking to the woman refutes atheism in Oliver Cadre's thinking. See, it's all pure biblical, isn't it? That's fascinating, isn't it? without leaving a vestige sufficient for a foundation stone. Oh, the poetic majesty of his writing. He really was a good writer. Enoch's pillar, as mentioned by Josephus, is upon the same roll. The inner end of the same roll, Joseph's record, presents a representation of the judgment. At one view, you behold the Savior seated upon his throne, crowned and holding the scepters of righteousness and power before whom also are assembled the 12 tribes of Israel, the nations, the languages, and the tongues of the earth, the kingdoms of the world over which Satan is represented as reigning Michael the archangel, holding the keys to the bottomless pit, and at the same time the devil as being chained and shut up in the bottomless pit. 
Oliver Cowdery and likely Joseph Smith clearly felt that much of the papyri was connected with the Bible. In particular, many drawings, the vignettes themselves, were explicitly said to be about important biblical events. This fits well with what becomes a common trend in describing the papyri in early Mormonism. And my note on this, exactly. And even with the inspiration given them from heaven, this view is 100% wrong. And I'm not trying to claim a false objectivity in saying that, Mr. Moolstein. I'm simply sharing with you the evidence that you shared with us. I'm just doing it on video. You did it in print. I'm just putting it to the final conclusion that Kerry Mulstein does not give us. So the Levitt account. Let's go to the Levitt account. This is really interesting as well. Another example of hearing about biblical connections comes from Sarah Levitt. She saw the papyri in either late 1835 or early 1836. We went into the upper room, saw the Egyptian mummies, the writings that was said to be written in Abraham's day, Jacob's ladder being pictured on it, and other lost more wonders that I cannot write upon at this time. While it is clear, and this is on page 455, this is Molstein, while it is clear that someone spoke to Levitt of a connection between the papyri and the Bible, it is not clear who told Levitt that Jacob's ladder was depicted in the Egyptian vignettes, because it followed directly after a sermon by Joseph Smith in the same building. It's also possible that he also showed them the papyri and mummies, as he was wont to do, but we cannot tell. At this period, Joseph Smith Sr. also sometimes showed visitors the mummies and the papyri. Thus, Levitt is at best a second-hand source of Joseph Smith Jr.'s ideas, though she may be recalling the teaching of someone else altogether. My note on this is, that doesn't matter to me at all, these are more witnesses to the Bible provenance of the papyri. That's what I'm focused on, correct? The incorrect biblical provenance is the entire problem, and Joseph never corrected it. In fact, he's the one that started it. And he kept right on going. And he let all of the early Mormons imagine that connection and teach it and preach it and expand on it. And he never once corrected any of them that we have any record of. Either from their own journals, Joseph Smith cussed me out for saying something about the papyri, or from his own writings or sermons or publications. It was always the biblical connection. So... Let me see. Oh, an account of a gentleman. I'm still on page 455. An account of a gentleman and two ladies being shown a papyrus hanging on the wall of the temple and being told Jacob's ladder was depicted thereon by Joseph Smith Sr. seems to be from the same time period 
1835, early 1836. James H. Kennedy said it is, Molstein says, Kennedy's reminiscence, even though they're third hand, are similar to the Levitt remembrance. Later witnesses of the papyri cast some light on this Jacob's Ladder issue. And then he goes to the Henry Caswell account. And I'm going to read part of this. I've read part of this in a previous video, but I'm going to complete it this time. Uh, one of the Mormons said, Mr. Smith informs us that this picture is an emblem of redemption. Uh, do you see those four little figures? That is the old devil desiring to devour the four quarters of the earth. Look at this person uh, keeping back the big dog. That is Jesus Christ keeping the devil from devouring the four quarters of the earth, he said. Look down this way. This figure near the side is Jacob, and those are his two wives. Now do you see those steps? What I replied, do you mean those stripes across the dress of one of Jacob's wives? And he said, yes, that is Jacob's ladder. And that is indeed curious, I remarked, because Jacob's ladder standing on the ground and only reaching up to his wife's waist. I've shown the picture of the papyri of that. Well, Caswell also heard a description, this is on page 456. Molstein is saying, Caswell also heard a description of the meaning of what must have been the original source of facsimile number one. What he recounts of that description matches perfectly with what had been published about that facsimile one month earlier. Such precision and reliability of Caswell suggests that we can place a certain amount of trust in Caswell's other account of Smith's interpretation. Additionally, the fact that both Levitt and Caswell, as well as possibly Kennedy's source, were told that Jacob's ladder was depicted on the papyri despite several intervening years indicates at the very least that for some time it was prevalently held that Joseph Smith thought Jacob's ladder was depicted on the papyri that he owned. If there is any accuracy to what Caswell heard, then clearly Joseph Smith associated the Bible with a myriad of elements from the Egyptian drawings. And this, for our purpose, shows us the fraud in plain daylight. The Appleby account, I'm on page 457 now. Hey, Teresa. Hey, Patty Cake. Good to see you here again. It's always good to see you. Teresa Pittman, welcome. The Appleby account, William Appleby, shown the papyri in 1841. He is a fairly reliable secondhand source in as much as he received his information about Joseph Smith's view from Joseph Smith. <laughs> well, okay. We'll accept that, right? <laughs> Besides, now on page 458, Besides writing about the vignettes now, that is the pictures, that were the sources for the published facsimiles, 
Appleby says there are also representations of men, beasts, birds, idols, and oxen attached to a kind of a plow and the female guiding it. We know that's in our papyri today. Also, the serpent whom beguiled Eve, we've seen that described before in other accounts. He appears with two legs erect in the form and appearance of a man, but his head in the form and representing the serpent with his forked tongue extended. So some of Appleby's writings about the vignettes convey only description without any interpretation or biblical association, such as listing that there were birds and oxen and plows. Well, he was quite accurate in describing scenes on the papyri. Absolutely. Just as surely as Caswell was. However, the account also supplies us with an interpretation that is not part of the facsimiles and that does connect with the Bible. Appleby informs us that there was a leg serpent with his tongue sticking out, but also provides the interpretation that this is a depiction of the serpent beguiling Eve. This rings a confirming note with Cowdery's writings. And we know that Cowdery got his information from Joseph Smith. Yeah. Now, the Haven account, still on page 458, the interpretation of the serpent beguiling Eve is strengthened by Charlotte Haven's writings. She visited Nauvoo as a youth in 1843. Young Charlotte writes of the Egyptian vignettes. I'm on page 459 here. Young Charlotte writes of the Egyptian vignettes that she saw one of which was interpreted as Mother Eve being tempted by the serpent, who, the serpent, I mean, was standing on the tip of his tail, which with his two legs formed a tripod and had his head in Eve's ear. Again, and this is Mulstein, again we see the association of the leg serpent with the story of the fall, the biblical story. Furthermore, Haven remembered that Mother Smith said the papyri containing the writing of Abraham and Isaac. This is the only recollection of Isaac being mentioned, making it likely that Haven got confused between Joseph and his grandfather Isaac. And my note to this is, that's all fine and well, but completely irrelevant to the fact that it's always being associated with the Bible. All of the witnesses have that common theme. And this is critical because it's not us trying to be biasly, stupidly, overly objective. It's us looking at the evidence through Kerry Molstein. Fantastic, isn't it? Really good. Continuing on the Quincy account. So now he goes to Josiah Quincy, page 459. He writes that Joseph Smith showed him the papyri and told him this is the autograph of Moses and those lines were written by his brother Aaron. Here we have the earliest account of the creation from which Moses composed the first book of Genesis. Now I'm going to page 4, 
60. So of all the accounts that we have examined so far, Molstein says Quincy's is the least substantiated. It's all good. If it is accurate, then Joseph Smith felt that the papyri contained more biblical stories than just those about Abraham and Joseph. And my notes here is, yet this is more than enough to substantiate powerfully that the Bible providence is the only one that any Mormon ever talked about. And where would they have gotten that information from? The only man who was able in America of that day to actually translate the papyri, their own prophet, Joseph Smith. Yes? Now, the Sharp account, again, I'm on page 460. I'm just singly going page by page through each one of these accounts of how Mulstein has generated the information that I believe is absolutely the most powerful weapon we ever have had to find the fraud. It's amazing. The Sharp account, Thomas Sharp, he wrote... Her story, Lucy Mac Smith, with regard to the mummies learned from Joe, is about as follows. It seems that for the express purpose of corroborating the brass plates, notice this, which were one day to be dug up and translated as the Book of Mormon, the angel of the Lord 3,000 years ago appeared to Joseph in Egypt and delivered to him a wooden case containing a roll of papyrus, which was to be buried by him with the family of one of the patriarchs. Now that Sharp's account, that's, that's really interesting, isn't it? Well, clearly, associations between the Bible and the papyri were rife among the Latter-day Saints, right? And they truly were. And here's my note. And Joseph never corrected this biblical rifeness in the papyri in any sermons, letters, or publications. He did correct false rumors along with Oliver Cowdery when they started spreading rumors that he had the bodies of one of the ancient pharaohs of the Bible or of King Abimelech or whoever, Joseph Smith was squelching false rumors about the identification of the mummies, but he never once tried to correct anybody's impression, no matter what biblical aspect of the papyri they were saying, Joseph Smith never corrected any of that because that was his basis that made him a greater prophet to the early Mormons. Why would he correct that? Let that flow. Let that information flow. 
Yes, I am one. I am one of the biblical prophets, just like Abraham and Joseph and Moses. I translate Egyptian papyri for Pete's sake. I translate ancient gold plates out of ancient unknown languages. Joseph Smith wants that image. He does nothing to correct it. He is tying in with that biblical provenance. This is his modus operandi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but hey, it makes me sound intellectual. So there you go. Mm. Page 461, Molstein continues. The other six accounts represent different kinds of witnesses. Now, Levitt, the Levitt account that we just looked at, is either a second-hand or a third-hand account relating a belief that Jacob's ladder was pictured on the papyri. Kennedy is a fourth-hand account regarding the same belief, and Caswell is a third-hand account that agrees with the other two on this matter. These accounts span from 1836 until 1842 and are from people who liked Joseph Smith as well as from those who ridiculed him, representing a varying spectrum of reliability. Yet their agreement on this subject over such a long period of time and from such divergent points of view suggests that they were to be valid to the notion that Joseph Smith thought Jacob's ladder was depicted on the papyri. At the very least, several people believed he did. And he dang sure didn't stop them from believing that. Very interesting. A similar case is represented by the Cowdery, the Appleby, and the Haven writings. Cowdery believed that the snake from the Garden of Eden was depicted on the papyrus. Appleby's secondhand account agrees with this, as does Haven's thirdhand account. They also span almost the entire time Joseph Smith owned the papyri, ranging from 1835, when he first acquired them, until 1843, one year before his death. Taken together, these disparate witnesses present a good possibility that Joseph Smith felt the papyri contained a drawing of the snake from the Garden of Eden, page 461. Thank you, Carrie Moolstein. I'll be quoting you, Bubba. He also says we can see a definite pattern, and I'm on page 462 now. We can see a definite pattern regarding which biblical figures were associated with the papyri. Oh, now, this is kind of fun. The writings of Abraham, of course, were mentioned 46 different times. The writings from Joseph of Egypt are spoken of 12 times, while Jacob, Isaac, Moses, and Aaron are each mentioned once. 
Jacob's ladder is mentioned three times. Eve and the serpent is mentioned three times. And a depiction of Enoch's tower is mentioned once. So we see the same ratio of mentions of Abraham as opposed to other figures before the publication of the book of Abraham as afterwards. And among those who were not Mormons, as opposed to those who were, Abraham is clearly the focus of the papyri by those who saw them. Joseph of Egypt is also strongly associated with them. There is a reasonable but not strong connection with Jacob's ladder and the Garden of Eden. All other associations are negligible. So what we can safely conclude is that a number of people believe the Mormon prophet thought many of the drawings on the papyri were about the events and characters of the Bible, especially the Garden of Eden story and Jacob's lather. This is Molstein on page 462. On page 464 now, these second-hand accounts make it clear that there was some belief during the Nauvoo era that the mummies were royalty. I've skipped over several of the descriptions of the mummies uh, being Pharaoh this or Pharaoh that or whatever. The point he makes is that the mummies were considered royal and perhaps were connected with the exodus in the Bible. Moses and the Exodus. This same evidence suggests that at the very least, Joseph held the view that the mummies were Egyptian royalty. Okay. This idea is strengthened by a host of third-hand accounts. Such hearsay accounts mean little in and of themselves, but when they accord with the writings of two men who heard from Joseph Smith himself about the identities and who recorded these conversations soon afterward, they lend a supporting air to the authenticity of these recollections. This is how we use the witnesses to cross-check each other. It's very refreshing to me personally to see a Mormon apologist Take the time and the care to do this with the witnesses. None of the other ones have. They've all been abusing the witnesses in order to support one of their stupid subjective theories or another, all in the name of objectivity, which is pure bunk. Yeah, I've got my eye on you, John Gee. Yes, I have my eye on you, Michael Dennis Rhodes, and you, Hugh Nibley. You are the one who started all of this silly shenanigans that all of the scholars following after you have fallen into the same ditch and they're chuck full of mud. Way to go, Hugh. That, unfortunately for you, is the only legacy you have. And it's a brutally nasty one. 
And that's because you too subjectively did not like where the evidence led and what it showed. And so you manipulated it nonstop. And we have evidence of that all over the place, right? So, at the very least, Joseph Smith thought the mummies were royal. So most of those who write about the mummies, they learned about them from Joseph Smith's mother. Now, this is interesting because she showed them to a number of people. Now, Mother Smith was apparently uh, quite a storyteller in regard to the antiquities. And this isn't surprising because, of course, she was given a quarter for every showing. And, of course, she had an interest in that, of course. So she's going to make this seem grander than I'll get out. We get that. That's all good and well. We can accept that. Molstein, on page 465 now of this book, says, Yet the fact that the accounts are prevalent and that they at least partially agree with the few secondhand sources we have suggests there is some validity to them. In substance, they amounted to an assertion that one or more of the mummies was one of the pharaohs or kings of Egypt. Three years later, Lafayette Knight visited the Smiths in Nauvoo in 1843. His mother told me was King Onidas, one of the mummies, on whose breast was found the writings of Abraham, being, as they say, the astronomy taught by him, with a long wand, she pointed out to us the supposed pharaoh of the Exodus himself, his wife and his daughters. Then followed a detailed account of the life of each. Upon my asking her how she obtained all this information, she replied in a severely virtuous tone, in a manner calculated to repress all further doubt and questioning, my son Joseph recently received a revelation from the Lord regarding these people and their times. He told it all to me. This is critical. I am not exaggerating this. This is the understanding of the early Mormons. And it doesn't matter if it's a biased family member of Joseph Smith. It's irrelevant if it's one of his scribes. It doesn't matter if it's a new convert from across the ocean from Great Britain who came and joined the church and gathered Zion together in one place to fulfill what? Biblical prophecy. Yet again, the Bible's always there. Everyone understood Joseph Smith got his knowledge from God. Revelation. That is the bottom. That is the anchor. That is the ground. That is the fundamental reality that everyone touted. And that's why I'm emphasizing it. Because today's apologists won't. You heard me right. You, I'm not exaggerating. What does this say about God? 
he obviously didn't know spit about the papyri either, did he? <laughs> right? <laughs> there isn't a scholar on the planet, you guys, not one anywhere in the church or out of the church who can find any of this biblical interpretation in the papyri. No one does because it's not there. And yet to tens of thousands of people in Joseph Smith's day, including Joseph Smith, that's all that it was all about was the biblical provenance through revelation. Now I'm not being I'm not claiming a false objectivity in this. There's the evidence. Thank you, Carrie Molstein, page 465. <laughs> this is powerful. 466. Let's go to 466, man. So her curiosities, that is Lucy Max Smith's, consisted of two mummy kings and their queens uh, who lived long before Pharaoh, also the foot of Pharaoh's daughter and a number of sheets of hieroglyphics, which she commenced to explain. Several other accounts spanning a number of years contain near identical identifications. So it appears that over time now, the perceptions that Joseph Smith identified the mummies with royalty and often with the Exodus become stronger and more widespread. Okay, 467. At the very least now, many people learned from the senior Smiths that the mummies were royal and connected with the Exodus. And Joseph, this is my note in his book, and Joseph Smith never corrected that we've ever found anywhere in print uh, from anyone Joseph Smith had contact with or his own materials. He never corrected this impression if it was wrong, as he did with the mummies. Not once, not that I'm aware of. He always maintained it was about Abraham and Joseph as a bare minimum. Yeah. So uh, we can easily conclude, this is Molstein, here's his grand poopah conclusion. All hail Kerry Molstein and your conclusion. This conclusion is said better than I ever would have ever imagined a Mormon apologist saying it. My hat is off to you, kudos. Kerry Mulstein for finally coming out with an honest, a more honest approach to this. It's a shame that so much of your other stuff is so hokey, but this one isn't. We can easily conclude that Joseph Smith acquired and displayed mummies and papyri, sure, during an era of intense interest in Egypt, absolutely, and its connection with the Bible, fundamentally so. That was held all over America. And you notice Joseph Smith never stepped outside of what he already knew. He just went with the biblical provenance, just like everybody else did. Yeah. 
Sucks to be him. While it is not as easy to tell Joseph Smith or to tell how Joseph Smith himself thought, the antiquities he owned were associated with biblical stories. Besides stating that the writings of Abraham and Joseph were on the papyri, which he was the first one to do with Oliver Cowdery just two days after acquiring the papyri. This was even before he purchased it. The first thing on Joseph Smith's mind was, ooh, which biblical patriarch does this link to? That was his only thought. And it remained that way throughout the course of his life, as we now well know, right? So it is very clear that many who knew Joseph Smith believed he saw such connections. The notion that the papyri contained depictions of the Garden of Eden of Jacob's ladder spanned a number of years and was held by a variety of unconnected people. That's a very cool observation. Yeah. The multiple accounts spanning so many years create a strong probability that Joseph Smith saw more connections between his antiquities and the Bible than just those of Abraham and Joseph. I cannot say that loud enough. I am blown away that Kerry Mulstein gave us the key. Thank you, Brother Mulstein. I, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. I've, I've heard it both ways, so I'm not trying to be a snot. Just a snot nose kid. <laughs> but I'm an old kid. Hey, I can get away with this crap. I'm over 60 now, right? Anyway, so I'm going to reread this final conclusion because it is so well put. You This clarifies. This clarifies. Forget everything else. John, I love to muddy up the waters on this issue. Gee has ever written or said he is completely out of date. It does not matter. Kerry Mulstein completely destroys everything every Mormon apologist has ever written on this subject, including himself. So let me reread this and I will go slow and I won't be a, you know, I'm hamming it up a little bit, but let me just straightforward read this to you. This is all we ever need to describe to anyone who we are talking about with this subject, especially if they're trying to keep you in the church or get you to rejoin or for whatever reason. This is where I go from now on. This is the object of our desire. The multiple accounts spanning so many years create a strong probability that Joseph Smith saw more connections between his antiquities and the Bible than just those of Abraham and Joseph. This is in keeping with what we would expect from the larger cultural milieu, as well as from Joseph Smith's own repeated pattern of experiencing a variety of connections with and manifestations 
of the ancient world of the Bible. Magnifico! Marvelous, darling. I say hallelujah. There it is. That is the end of this discussion from now on. It's over. It's over. The Mormons have conceded and proven that Joseph Smith gave us the false provenance of the papyri. And they've published it. It's over. I, there is, I can't think of any other way to put this. It's over. I don't care what Steve Smoot says anymore. It doesn't matter. John Gee, he can write 200 more scholarly papers. I won't give a flying flip. It doesn't matter. I don't care what anything Terry Molstein writes. I don't give a flip if they discover a lost book of Hubus Niblus. It's irrelevant anymore. Because the wrong provenance was given to it, and nobody today that's alive accepts that provenance. You don't see Mormon scholars publishing the papyri and Joseph Smith's interpretation and the early Mormons' interpretation of Jacob's ladder and the creation and the fall of man and Eve being tempted by the serpent using the papyri and publishing that in the Journal of Egyptian Archaeology or the Journal of Ancient Near Eastern Studies, do you? Hell no! Of course you don't. You never will. Mormons don't even accept Joseph Smith's view. Let me say that again. Mormons don't even accept their own prophet's biblical point of view of the papyri. <laughs> That's as objective as I can get. I'm quoting the Mormons to the Mormons. See their value? I don't even have to go to the non-Mormon Egyptologists. So. Anyway, let's see. I've gone uh, I've gone a minute 20. <laughs> a minute 20. Woohoo! Yeah, right. An hour and 20 minutes, sorry. And uh that's essentially what I wanted to cover is I I've just I I am just so impressed, sincerely, because Molstein it's so unfortunate for him that you know he's a junior tier. Uh, Egypt, and I'm not trying to insult the man. I, I promise, I'm not ad hominem him here. I, I promise, I have no desire, I have no reason to. But he he came later on the scene. Okay, so he's a junior tier Egyptologist as well as a a, a junior tier Mormon apologist at BYU, and so um, he's more or less. Uh, in order to get uh, some momentum, you know, try to get try to get some stuff published. Let me see how many articles I can write. You know, he's got that new book out on Isaiah that's just the same fluff, pap, and pablum that Daniel Ludlow wrote 35, 40 years ago. There's nothing new. Or Jared Ludlow. Well, both of them. Um, you know, he just keeps copying the same stupid 
materials of John Gee that have been absolutely refuted. Not on, not just by not just by Rittner, and not just by Stephen Thompson, and not just by Ed Ashman, but other Mormons. Now, Brian Howlett, RFM's uh, interview with Brian Howlett, was just put up this last week, and I re-listened to that. I mean, nobody's agreeing with John Gee and his determination to make Joseph Smith get a couple of hits and prove he's a true prophet. Carrie Molstein just completely destroyed you, John Gee. Nothing you write anymore means anything anymore until you can refute Carrie Molstein. And good luck because I have the witnesses' materials myself. I double checked what Molstein was saying. He is spot on. Finally, we have an apologist who's willing to let the evidence speak and show us the accurate and true statistical nature of the eyewitnesses. You know, Mormons make a big deal about eyewitnesses. Hey, Book of Mormon must be to Daniel Peterson just screams about those three and eight witnesses nonstop over and over and over again. But he's completely silent about the contemporary witnesses, the eyewitnesses to the papyri in the Book of Abraham. I find that rather odd. You know, do you love the power of two or three witnesses or 11 or not? Well, we have over 100, according to Molstein, and I can verify that because I've got those. Well, come on. What do they say? Without exception, it's always the same background, textually, historically, philosophically, religiously and revelationally, it always ties in with what Joseph Smith already knew, the biblical idea. And that's 100% wrong. That's where Molstein did not dare go. He did not take it out to the full end of the line with the full conclusion. That's the elephant in the room for the Mormons to look at. And I got to admit, the trunk is a pretty magnificent part of the elephant. Uh, but you got to let go of the tail and come around to the front end to see the rest of the elephant, you Mormon apologists. You're on the wrong end. So, yeah. So, uh, basically, that that is, uh, shall I take a few minutes and talk to you for a couple of minutes? You probably don't want to talk to me. Hell, you've been listening to me for flat my lip for an hour and a half. But then you keep coming back for more, and I appreciate it. It's always good to see all of you. I, I love all of you, man. This is great fun for me. Let me know, uh, do you want me to continue talking about this subject the papyri, the book of Abraham. I mean, there are a thousand ways we can approach this. I've been using just the physical evidence as a crisp determination to where to guide our thinking. But I mean, we could go into doctrine. I mean, I haven't even talked about uh, the ridiculous approach of Michael Dennis Rhodes on the facsimiles or anything. Would you like me to continue this? Are you getting tired of this subject? Uh, I've asked a couple of you on the phone and you said, you've told me to present it to, to you, my audience. 
If you would like me to continue on this subject of getting clear on the papyri, I'm more than happy to. If you would like another subject, hey, let's go on another subject. Maybe if you would like, I can mix it up a few. You know, do a couple of them on something in church history or whatever, something with the modern day uh, toadstool called the prophet. Nelson or whatever, you know, or we can stick with this subject. I personally am thrilled that I'm finally getting clear on this. And so that's why I wanted to jump on this and share it with so many people, because it is so wonderful to finally get it. Yeah. And so I'm sharing it. So anyway, let me know. Uh, let me know. Oh, hey, Kevin McLean. Good to see you. Patty cake. Uh, hey, Om Om. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doug Vincent speech. Oh, yeah. Oh, cherish Huff Daddy. Hey, Huff Daddy. Good to see you. Paul Osborne. More, more. Okay, okay. Yeah, and, and my, well, actually, that's true. I, I'm, I'm not trying to short. Oh, hold on. I'm spitting all over the screen. Sorry. Yeah, I'm not trying to shorten this series. Look, uh, Paul Osborne. Oh, you guys. He, oh, He's got overwhelming stuff. Uh, I could I could actually get with him and, and he could help me make sure I have stuff clear and share some of his fabulous research. I, I'd be thrilled to do that. Seriously, you guys will just, you'll love his stuff. Dan Vogel has, now I don't want to step on toes, you know. I know Dan Vogel has his approach and he has so much excellent technical knowledge on the uh, the Kirtland Egyptian papers and the Egyptian materials and stuff that he's sharing. And I would certainly defer you to him. Absolutely. I, I can't begin to approach his level of expertise. Uh, but yeah, we've got a boatload of stuff. Uh, you like this stuff? Okay, Doug. Great, great. I, I do too. I'm not kidding. I, I, I don't think I could ever get tired of talking about it. Get it? Got it. Tom Miller. Gary Francis, good to see you. Yes, yeah, Dan Vogel, we are finally getting somewhere with this subject. Man, uh, you know, forgive me for acting like a kid on Christmas morning, but Vogel's spot on here. We really are finally getting somewhere on this subject. We've had the new light coming out now. Yes, thank you to the... I mean, come on, give credit where credit's due. No question. Uh, the Joseph Smith Papers. Man, this is volume four. You guys have got to get this. I this is a smorgasbord. This this is the feast right here. Fantastic text. Really need to get that. Fabulous primary material. So, yeah, good. We can never know too much about mummies. Yeah, baby. How many times around their head did the wrappings go? That would be able to prove the book of Abraham true if John Gee was to look into that. That's how ridiculous some. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I could talk about the facsimiles. I agree. I will talk about the facsimiles. Yeah. I have Paul Osborne's one of the best. I, I'm not kidding. I, I will review a lot of his materials. And actually, I can refute myself because that was my. Uh, subject that I really love to jump on was the facsimile. So I will begin to do that. Absolutely. Exhaust the subject so the episodes don't, makes it easier to find his episodes. Okay. T.O. Thank you. That's a good, that's a very good point. 
And that was my intent originally, and I'm happy to continue doing so. Fundamentally so. Tom Miller, I want my mummy. <laughs> I want my mummy. <laughs> oh, you guys are awesome, man. You crack me up. Uh, facsimiles next. Uh, man, I'll be thrilled to. Faxes, yes. Okay, Mo. Yep, yep, yep. Brent and I will be talking about the text of Abraham and the facsimiles, Dan Vogel. Uh, and, and I'm here to tell you guys that'll be on April 6th. If I remember right, uh, it'll be on Mormonism Live. Man, don't miss that one. Uh, we're, we're excited for that, Dan. Uh, looking very, very forward to that. Brent and Dan are probably the two most knowledgeable uh, now that Rittner has died. And I know Molstein and Gee and Rhodes are probably going to be offended if they ever watch this. Oh, tough luck. You guys use too much subjective bias uh, to hide behind. And so that's the way it goes, you know. The thing I love about Vogel and Metcalf and Osborne and RFM. I mean, who doesn't love Mormonism Live because of the way Bill Real and RFM just simply show the evidence step by step and dissect it and show that the conclusions people come to just are not based on the evidence. That's what I that's what I'm trying to do. So yeah, I mean, we 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 will keep it going. Absolutely. Interview with Paul Osborne, Moksha. Well, that's an option. Paul, you listening? We may have to set that up, dude. Hey, we can hide your face if if you're afraid we'll all fall in love with you because you're so handsome. You don't have to show your face, but it would be fun to interview you. It really would. Oh, well, thank you, Teresa. That's, that's very kind of you to say. Yeah, I am enthusiastic about it, and I do love presenting it enthusiastically because, you know, it's like Dan said. We're finally getting somewhere here. It's look, it's beginning to make sense, right? That's what's so cool about this. Um, the confusion that and I I agree there is complexity. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be simplistic, I'm trying to say it's simple. I don't see those two as the same. But the added uh, complexity, the the problematic uh, muddying up, that's on the apologist side. There's no confusion on where the evidence leads once you see what the papyri show. They're the ones that has it all. So they're the ones making hay out of it. Well, <laughs> the nice thing is, hey, I can let all that go and let them have it now. Sure. Oh, yeah. You've got another 45 years, dude, before you understand the book of Abraham. Good luck. I don't need to waste my time with that stuff because it's not about the book of Abraham. It never has been. It's all about Joseph Smith. See, that's where the ghost of Hugh Nibley continues to haunt the apologists, isn't it? They need to just drop Nibley. They do. That was the worst thing. Yeah. Yeah. RFM is responsible for getting me here. Thank you, my dear friend, RFM. You, you are, uh, you're a good man. Yeah. Logic simplified. <laughs> Beautiful way to put it, Tom Miller. I actually, yeah. Honest. 
logic simplified. And and the thing that made Molstein so his his discussion so powerful, I'm not even sure if he knew he was doing this or not, but he was actually using the Bayesian theorem approach. I mean, not in the magnificent mathematical detail and all the technicality, but the Bayesian approach is gave him his as objectively valid as the evidence would allow, it gave him his conclusion. That's what I mean by the Bayesian theorem of inference. That's what I love about Bayes' theorem. For the first time, I've seen a Mormon scholar do that with one of the most important subjects, at least to us, the contemporary eyewitnesses to the papyri. I mean, what a great place to apply that. Molstein did, and what a conclusion. Uh, he just didn't recognize what he did. What Molstein did is he grabbed the football, got confused, turned around, and ran in the other goal for a touchdown and gave us the points. That's what John Gee's been doing for 35 years. Every time he makes a touchdown, it's in our end zone. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to yell at him, just stop and turn around. I'm going to let him keep making score for us, <laughs> to use an analogy. All right. Well, Cherish, the Joseph Smith papers, the reason I'm saying they are legit, number one, uh, they really, they, they've been forced to it, but they do have controls. Uh, they, I, I think they are legit because for instance, our own Dan Vogel here has done that five volume and, and I don't have it, but I will someday get it, that five volume of early Mormonism documents and all. You know, they can't lie in the Joseph Smith papers about what Joseph Smith produced and all, because we already know it. So, yeah, it's, it's by apologists, but the Joseph Smith papers is one of the best things they've ever done, even though they were forced to come clean and become more open with the sources. Thank goodness they were forced. So yeah, yeah. The Joseph Smith papers, I, I promise they're really good. Yeah. Hey, Paul, we can, do, don't, don't be scared. It's, it's not a worry. We do not have to do an interview, Paul. We really don't. I'll talk to you. Uh, on the in the private messages over on Shades Board. No, I just want to consult with you so that I can get the information right because your information is just so comprehensive. I it just it blows me away. <laughs> You're awesome. So anyway, yeah, I, I'm not going to make a big deal. I'm not here to make you uncomfortable. I promise. Now, if you don't want to do an interview, it's no big deal for me. But I am going to. Uh, use your information on the facsimiles because, dude, you've been working at this for years. You deserve the credit, right? Well, I'm happy to give it to you. I promise. And I deserve a little bit of credit because I actually found some pretty good stuff on the facsimiles too. But <laughs> as an apologist, you have found them as a scholar. And that's good. And uh, we have a modern Egyptologist, uh, Metis or Mechus, who is in touch with one of our friends on Shade's message board. And he has written a book, brand new one, on Egyptian hypocephaly. I'm going to get that. So, yeah, no, it's, it's all good.
All right. Uh, oh. All right. TBM's a gift with the ability to always be right about everything. Why would they ever give that up? Yeah, that's what they love to think, huh? The TBMs are gifted with the right, with being right about everything. And yet when you turn around, whoa, <laughs> what they were right about, an awful lot of that has been shown they weren't. Like, I couldn't keep being one. <laughs> uh -uh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. All right. TBMs have reinforced floors. Good deal. Yes, use my information. Thank you, Paul. I, I will, seriously. Yeah, yeah. I'll be contacting you. Um, it, you know, I've, I've more or less taken uh, the apologists as far as I can go. I mean, I, I can kill two birds with one stone by using your excellent materials on the facsimiles uh, and and compare and contrast with uh, uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes, for instance. You know, he said absolutely all of the interpretations of Joseph Smith's hypocephalus is accurate according to today's Egyptological standards. I, I mean, there's only one thing dumber he's ever done, and that was plagiarizing Rittner. <laughs> I mean, talk about a gaffe. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, yeah, there's some good stuff on the facsimiles. Uh, we're, we're, I'll, I'll get on that. Yeah, I will. Okay, next Sunday, let's let's say this, next Sunday, uh, next week, same time, same place, same yo-yo bubba, me, the BYP. You have been bipped by the BYP. I will begin uh, a discussion, an extended discussion of the facsimiles, and we can go through them uh, figure by figure. We can we can compare and cross-reference and check. I have a collection of some 50 hypocephali. I've, I've got a pretty decent collection. I was doing that as an apologist. So I mean, yeah, yeah, we'll start, we'll start on that. Definitely the facsimiles. I, I'm excited to get to that because then I can show you my my former apologetic interpretation, and then I can show you why in my zeal without knowledge, uh Utilizing the information on the Joseph Smith interpretation of the facsimiles, I'll show you why I was so wrong, and then I'll show you why uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes is out to lunch, and uh, I'll bring in some of Paul Osborne's. He deserves to be uh, better read and better well-known, truly. Uh, yeah, I'm excited, Paul. This will be cool. We'll get together and talk. Big it all, yeah. Uh, you're right, Vega Dog. Some of us ex-TBMs also obsess with being correct. What thrills me about this particular issue at this point is I am clear about what I am more clear. I'll put it this way. I am more clear about what relationship and what kind of documents the Kirtland Egyptian alphabet and grammar papers are, the, the Book of Abraham translation folio, the different materials Joseph Smith and his scribes were working on. You know, Dan Vogel has helped me clarify that so much. Uh, and so has RFM and his interview with John DeLynn with uh, Rittner. So, yeah, 
I mean, everybody likes to be right, but what I'm excited about the most is this this ability to finally say, okay, I I understand the context better. I understand why it is credible to believe that Joseph Smith, even though it's it's in a problematic witness, the Quincy witness, I agree, it's not a problem for me. It is credible to say Joseph Smith pointed to a hieroglyph and said, that, that is the signature of Abraham, because we have a hieroglyph that does link to Abraham in the Joseph Smith Egyptian alphabet and grammar. So it it's stuff like that that has helped me get more clear, not meaning I'm more right, but I'm much more clear, which in turn helps me understand why I believe we do have the original of the book of Abraham. The facsimiles from Joseph Smith's own claim came from the book of Abraham. And those facsimiles came from, physically from, the book of breathings. There's your identification. I mean, to me now, that's just as, that's as clear as saying, hey, this is Diet Coke and I'm drinking it. Oh yeah, that's Diet Coke. So that's exciting for me. I don't, I don't think I have to convert anybody to my point of view. I can just simply go point to the evidence. That's what makes this so much fun for me. So anyway, yeah. All right. Well, I, yeah, well, I have to qualify the statement because I, we all get carried away, Vega Dog. <laughs> I, get it? Carried away? Yeah. Oh, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> hey, all of us like to be right. Yeah. So I guess from my point of view is the, I believe the probability favors at this point. Now understand we're fallible, right? We're finite. Okay. I'm good with that. And in the future, new evidence could show up that completely changes our conclusions today. That's all well and good. We understand that. It may or it may not. The key is not having faith. The key is believing we're justified in following the evidence to where it leads at this point, but remaining flexible to change if new evidence comes along and shows us we have to change. That's not being wishy-washy and willy-nilly and weak-minded like the Mormon leadership teaches. That's not that at all. That is being flexible in the face of new evidence. That's absolutely, in my opinion, essential to be. And I was. I was flexible enough to say uh, when I was a TBM, looking back at it and seeing where the evidence was leading, I was saying, uh, I, I can't, I can't defend that right now. I can't. The evidence really does not 
point to that direction anymore. So I have to go that way. So, and everyone has their freedom to do with as they wish. It's all good. I don't have any desire to convert or deconvert or argue or be angry or really make an enemy out of someone who, who thinks and believes differently than me. You are evil. No, you can throw all that bullshit away. None of that's necessary. Now we can be all friends. We can have hot dog barbecues together and talk about the materials and enjoy a good laugh and be refuted and do it gracefully. See, oh, all right. Yeah. All right. I see how you can read the evidence in a way that's different than me. And it's all good. It's all good. I love that. You know, this is a new, it's a new, uh, it's a new way for me personally that I find much more refreshing because I don't need to judge so harshly. And I legitimately can look at everybody as friends on a quest, on a knowledge quest. Absolutely. And if you say, no, we have to go down this trail I'm going down this trail, whether you like it or not, I can now retort and say, fabulous. When you go down that trail and you learn all about the information and all that, please feel free to come back and share it with us. I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go this way. But man, blessings to you for going that way. I love that approach. Yeah, to me, that's much better, in my opinion. Now I'm ranting and raving, but Hey, we're having a good time. This is this is talk talk hour now. <laughs> oh, they got his feet <laughs> off, Daddy. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. Now, someday when I get brave enough, I will put my voice to song, and I will write a song in Garage Band with music too. Yeah, I'm doing music in Garage Band, and I am absolutely having a Ball. It is so much fun. Yeah. Okay. Hey, there's nothing wrong with feelings. I mean, feelings are real. There's no question about that. I mean, the Mormons aren't wrong in saying that. Feelings are real. There's no question about it. We are emotional beings. So, But to, to use that as the final basis, uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I personally like the physical evidence. That's why the apologists also do, even though they say, well, it's only through the spirit that you can get the actual truth. However, we do have some evidence for Shulam as a waiter. You know, if you've ever seen that John Gee new article on Shulam's wife, oh my God, what a nightmare. <sighs> what a ninja idiot <laughs> argument. Not him personally. I have no reason to add hominem, but the argument is just. I don't buy it. Not at all. So, uh, yeah, it was a... I think so, Ted's. Yeah. The book of Abraham was Joseph Smith's attempt. Well, the, you say... You say Joseph Smith using the book of Abraham in an attempt to fool people. Uh, that's somewhat... Uh, I mean... <laughs> true but skeptical uh 
I personally would see it as more of his attempt to legitimize, which is fooling the people, of course. I'm with you. I'm not disagreeing with you. But his attempt to legitimize his biblical connection because he wanted the Mormons that he was with and in charge of and loved and cared for, he wanted them connected to biblical Israel and to the biblical patriarchs and stuff. And so he was constantly trying to forge that connection. And he saw the papyri as a way of doing that. Now, uh, it sucks that that's the wrong provenance. I don't think any, I don't think any of the owners, the original owners or the original people who actually created that papyrus and drew the facsimiles on it and wrote that book of breathings for their own Egyptian religion to bury with that person who was dead, Rittner was probably really correct when he said one of those mummies was actually that priest or with his book of breathings. It wasn't a pharaoh or anything like that. But I don't think any of those people had any kind of a biblical notion, even in Ptolemaic times. Okay, Grant, they live 100 BC in Ptolemaic times. I don't think they had a clue as to who Adam and Eve were. Or, or anything about the fall of man or the creation as the Bible taught it, the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus Christ, Michael the Ark, none of that would have been in the Egyptians' religion or understanding. That is simply us reading it back onto it. And, and I suspect that's what Joseph Smith did. And all of the people around him loved him for it. It magnified. See, again, this went back to one of my earlier videos, the literalness of all of this. Joseph Smith's biblical literalness, that is what made him the prophet to the early Mormons. Yeah, that, that was, man, he's not going to downplay that. He's going to scream for that for all he's, he brought in like Vogel was showing in his videos. He was, he was bringing in that patriarchal priesthood. He relished having the literal writings of as many of those biblical people as he could get away with packing into the papyrus. It didn't matter whether it was Isaac, Joseph, Abraham. Moses, he didn't care. The more, the better. And so, yeah. But it's all interpretation. So, yeah, I mean, I, I see your point. Uh, <laughs> you can't help but circle back around to seeing the biblical provenance is what got me so excited about Kerry Molstein is the absolute smoking gun against the authenticity. Absolutely. Fundamentally so. We don't even have to have PhDs. We don't even have to know how to spell the name Egypt anymore. We don't have to look at anything else. Just that biblical provenance theme refutes and destroys Joseph Smith's credibility, with the papyri being translated as the book of Abraham. No. Uh, I mean, the book of Joseph. Consider Dan Vogel's point on the book of Joseph. We know which scroll we do know, this is not a joke, we know which scroll the uh, book of Joseph was claimed to be. Now, wouldn't you know it? I don't know where I put it. Anyway, it was the other scroll. Oh, heck, I could show you this. Joseph. Oh, 
show you the Joseph Smith papers. So let's assume that for the sake of argument, the uh, the book of Abraham original is missing. Well, here's your book of Joseph right there. Every description just screams book of Joseph. There's the serpent on his legs talking to Eve. There's Enoch's pillar. There's the Godhead three in one. That's the book of Joseph. Can anyone find any biblical theme in that papyri? Of course not, because it has nothing to do with the Bible. But the early Mormons did. So even if the book of Abraham is missing, the book of Joseph isn't, and it's completely hokey too. Dan Vogel has a very powerful point with that. When you really think about it, are they also saying that now the book of Joseph is missing as well? <laughs> I mean, have they even thought about the ridiculous implications of their concept of a missing book of Abraham scroll? You know, it's just silly what kind of knots the apologists tie themselves up into, man. It really is. It's amazing. So, uh, all right. Yeah, Joseph was the better hand, hand writer, prettier handwriting. Joseph was the better scribe. Thank you, Paul. See, again, Paul Osborne, he knows all this stuff inside and out. That is a direct literal concept that the early Mormons were, were talking about and people were discussing. Yeah. <laughs> and it also had the red and black inks with it too. So, yeah, yeah, it's all fun. Okay, you guys. Hey, I'm at uh, I'm at two hours, an hour and fifty five minutes, uh, forty two likes. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been so much fun. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate all your support. I appreciate your donations. If you don't mind, keep donating, and I'll keep trying to give you just as good a knowledge as I can. If you can't, don't let that stop you from coming. Don't, it's not about the money, so don't even think it is. I love having you. I don't give a flying flip if nobody donates. That's irrelevant. I'm having so much fun sharing all this wonderful information with you and learning from you too. Yeah, so, okay, let's jump on the facsimiles. Yeah, now, if you want the details, and I've done pretty decent, I think, with the, uh, with the details of what is which and where and how with the Egyptian alphabet and grammar and the, the Egyptian alphabet document and the translation folios and why the hieroglyphs coming from the book of breathings identifies that as the original book of Abraham. Dan Vogel has much more exquisite detailed knowledge that he and Brent Metcalf are going to share beginning April 6th. I'm going to go ahead and move forward to the facsimiles in this series and we'll, I'll cover, uh, I'll cover uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes and his materials, and then we'll get into the Egyptian translation ideas. Uh, we'll compare them with Joseph Smith. We'll look up some Egyptian mythology, et cetera, on the, uh, the facsimiles. And we'll just, we'll kind of keep on trucking for that. And uh, so I'm going to 
I'm going to call it good. I'm going to sign off. Thank you all for showing up. I appreciate every one of you. I love having y'all here. I hope you do keep coming back. Hey, I, I mean, I'm trying to make it exciting and interesting. Uh, I, I just, I pray to God I'm not boring and dry and stilted like the general authorities are in general conference. If I ever become that way, you're welcome to slap me upside the head. Just reach in through the screen and grab me by the throat. <laughs> All right, you guys. Absolutely. My good pleasure, all of you. I'm going to head out now. So we will see you next week. Same time, same place for the Sunday Night Fireside. I love y'all. Have a great week. Be safe. Do well. Have fun. Be good. Make friends. Stay happy. Be good citizens of your country. And uh, I don't care if you believe in God or not. Pray for peace. We need it. Sincerely, truly. I don't want to politicize anything. I'm just saying, as a general rule, peace is much better than war. I'm not kidding. So, all right, you guys, have a great week. I'll see you either over on Shade's message board or I'll see you back here live. I'll see you Wednesday night. That's where I'll see you. Yeah, Mormonism live. Woohoo! My other two heroes, Bill Rill and Radio Free Mormon. Love all you guys. Okay, I got to go. See you all next week. Yeah, baby. I will, Tom. Thank you very much. I'll have a great week. Bye, Patty Cake. Ryan R. Yes, repent and pray. Do that too. You're welcome, Land Chop. Thank you. Yeah, Wednesday, Tom Miller. It'll be fun. Yes, thank you, Dan Vogel, for being a part of my conversation. It's always good to have you around. Absolutely. All of you are welcome anytime. Yep, Last Goonie, thank you. All right. Lizzie Woolley, thank you very much. Huff Daddy, yes. Oh, deep fried pork ribs. Oh, my gosh, Huff Daddy. That sounds fabulous. Hey, I just bought some this week. I might try that. Hey, I could make some next Sunday and then eat them on, on my live show in front of you guys. Woohoo! Hey, I've eaten chicken and hot dogs on my videos. I could do that live. I'd be the only live idiot to do that. That might be good. I might, I don't put it past me. All righty. See you guys. Have a good one. I love y'all, but I gotta go. And then I'll come back for some more. Stop it.